We're getting back into Hebrews. We're going to look at chapter 3 today, the whole chapter. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. Isn't that a good thing? (laughs) Okay. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the grace that you have given to us the fact that the cross has made us flawless, that the moment we turn to you, you forgave us. You lifted that burden. You made us new. And you gave us a new destination. We pray that you'll work in our hearts, that you'll open our hearts to see our community and those who are still burdened with sin. Help us to seek out those that we might tell them how God has lifted our burden. In Jesus' name, amen. Just before we start, I wanted to remind everybody um, I use the term preacher. I'm talking about the author of the book of Hebrews. If we remember, the book of Hebrews is not a letter per se, but a written sermon. So the, the commentator that I've been using extensively refers to him throughout his book um, as the preacher. And I like the way he did it because we don't know who it was that wrote the book of Hebrews. All we know is he wrote a sermon, and that sermon ended up in the Bible. And the last time I spoke, we looked at why Jesus came as a man. And we saw that Jesus came to include us as children of the Father in order to do this. He needed to suffer so that he could become our high priest. Chapter 3, the preacher switches back from the, from the doctrine, if you will, to practical application, or what it means for us to have Jesus as our high priest. He starts off, chapter 3, with therefore. So he's looking back at chapters 1 and 2, and he's saying, here, I've told you all these things. Now, because of this, I want you to understand this is what you need to do. And the whole of chapter 3 and part of chapter 4, he's going to be telling us what it means for Christ to be our high priest. So starting at chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Therefore, Holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses also was in all the house. I'm sorry. He was count, counted, lost my place there. 
more, worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are in. If we hold fast our confidence and boast of our hope firm until the end. The first thing he says is to consider Jesus because he was faithful to the Father. His entire ministry, he repeated that so many times. Everything I say, everything I do comes from the Father. He was faithful to tell us the message of who the Father is. He was faithful to live that life of perfect obedience that life of perfect obedience that we could never live up to. And he did that for us so that he could become our high priest and pay for our sins. The preacher stressed in the first two chapters that we need to carefully consider Jesus and his faithfulness to his Father. That's one of the things he talks about repeatedly. And Jesus expects us to follow his example. The preacher illustrates the glory of Christ's faithfulness as a positive example of how we should also be faithful in our lives to glorify him. First, he compares Jesus to Moses. Moses was faithful in the house as a servant. Jesus was faithful over the house as an heir. The preacher then continues by saying that Jesus was worthy of more glory than Moses. Remember, Israel back then, Moses would have been the greatest and most revered person that had ever existed in their history. If we think about our country and who we are and where we've come from, we might think of Abraham Lincoln, um, who led us to live up to the, the standard that all men are created equal and no man should own another. That's a hard lesson we had to learn as a country. And that's something that we think of. But Jesus was worthy of even more praise than Moses because he didn't free like the Israel, Israelites from the slavery in Egypt. He freed everyone from the slavery of sin. Second, he also compares the house to the builder. 
On TV, there are shows about these beautiful mansions. I don't know if you've ever seen them. I've seen some of them on Netflix. Alva likes to watch them. But they spend hours touring them and showing how stately and elegant they are. Can these houses claim responsibility for how beautifully they're built? No. Instead, they demonstrate the ingenuity of the builder. So that's what he's getting at here. Yes, there are these beautiful buildings that are out there, and we can look at them. But when we look at a beautiful building, we don't look at that beautiful building and say, aha, it is responsible for its existence, and it is so beautiful, and it deserves the praise. No, the builder deserves the praise. And he's getting at the fact that Jesus is the builder. He's the builder of the house who we are. Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, saying, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Paul is saying we are built on this foundation that Jesus is a cornerstone for. The preacher extends that and says, not only is he the cornerstone of the foundation, that stone that anchors the foundation in place, he is also the builder of the house. And we need to glorify him in our lives. Now, the rest of the third chapter of Hebrews follows these two positive examples with a negative example of the forefathers who disobeyed God and wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Starting at verse 7, he says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts when, as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. And they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. In verse 1, the preacher starts off with the phrase, Holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. He is talking to believers here. But he's reminding us of the consequences of falling away. I want us to look at two things we can get from this negative example. First, we can look at this as a test to examine our own hearts. 
Am I always going astray and wandering off? I'm not talking about church attendance. I am talking about my attitude. Am I on fire for his glory? Am I living the life that says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death? Philippians 3.10 If not, I need to spend time with him and get my priorities straight. We have to understand there are going to be good days and there are going to be bad days. Everybody has their ups and downs. That's not to say that, you know, but it still is a situation where are my priorities? We must be more careful to pay attention to our relationship with him on the good days. What? The good days? That's backwards. Not really. If you think about it, the bad days put me in a position where I know I have a real need. And I go to him because I have a real need. On the good days, I get busy with life. And I'm going along and I forget to take time to pray or take time to read my Bible or take time to talk to God. It's so important that we need to remind ourselves, even on the good days, I need to seek him out. I need to understand. I need him for every breath I breathe. So when things are good, we have to stop, take a breath, and ask him to help us remember, even now, we need him. Second, we need to remind ourselves that unbelief has serious consequences. Everybody has heard of this principle of sowing and reaping. You know, actually, the principle of sowing and reaping is so universal. It is a spiritual law that is as strong and as recognized as gravity is. I take something, I drop it, it falls. That's gravity. Sowing and reaping is the same way. My actions have consequences. You know, there are Eastern religions that call it karma. There are those people that say what goes around comes around. There are all sorts of different ways of saying it. But the truth of the matter is, this is so universally recognized that everything we do has consequences. So when we 
walk in unbelief, there are consequences to those things. And the thing is, is that like any seed, I sow it in the ground and it doesn't come up immediately. It comes up later. And so many times those things that I've sown in my life come up later. And I have to look back and say, oh man, I blew it way back then and now I'm paying for it. In this case, the example he gives and the negative example for Israel, he talks about them wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Well, if you look at Egypt to where the promised land was, we see that the distance would not have taken them 40 years to travel to get there. They actually spent some time at Mount Sinai where God gave out the Ten Commandments and they did other things and God gave them instructions and then they continued on. And when they got there the first time, Moses sent in 12 spies. And they went in and they looked over the land for 40 days. And when they came back, 10 came back and said, we are but grasshoppers in their sight. The other two said, God will give us the victory. Israel followed the 10. And God made them wander for 40 years as a result. What God said to Israel that day was very harsh. I wanted to read it. It's actually found in Numbers 14, 30 to 34. Surely you shall not come into the land which I swore to, to settle you, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. I can pronounce his last name. <laughs> Your children, however, whom you said would become prey, I will bring them in, and they will know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses will fall in the wilderness. Your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness, and they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. According to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days, for every day you will bear your guilt one year. Every, even 40 years, and you will know my opposition. God was not happy. The real tragedy was not just that the adults paid for their unfaithfulness. But their children had to spend that time growing up, wandering around in the wilderness. You know, nowadays we hear a lot of people talk about, oh, the needs of the children. 
here, their disobedience brought calamity on their own children. And this phrase, enter my rest, which he talks about here in, in Hebrews um, earlier when he's talking about their disobedience, reminds me of Jesus' invitation in Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. I wanted to talk about this. I know this is partly a salvation message, but it's good for us to hear the salvation message sometimes to remind us of what it is. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30 says this, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. First, his invitation was to everybody? Well, not exactly. His invitation is all who are weary and heavy laden. Now, truth be told, Everyone is heavy laden with the burden of guilt and sin. Many are not aware of this. Many do not see their need. So when Jesus is saying this, he's saying this to people who are aware of their need. He's saying, come. If you're aware that you have a debt. Come to me. And I will give you rest. Jesus said earlier in, other, in, in his ministry that those who are not sick don't need a physician. He wasn't saying those who are not aware of their guilt don't need salvation. What he's saying is they're not looking for salvation. What he's getting at here is those who are aware of their guilt, I'm here to be the answer. Now it seems strange that Jesus would follow the promise of rest I will give you rest. And then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. After all, doesn't putting on a yoke make the burden greater? Actually, a yoke is designed to share a burden. But Jesus didn't just share our burden. He took the entire burden and carried it on the cross. Every lie I told, every time I stole something, whether it be big, like a car, or small, like a paperclip, or intangible, 
like doing personal things on my employer's time. Every time I was impatient, every time I looked down at others, he took all of my anger, all of my rage, all of my fear, all of my petty prejudices, all of my hate, all of my sin, and carried this great burden to the cross. When the Father poured out his wrath on Jesus, and Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was my great burden of sin he was carrying. It was your great burden he also carried to the cross. If you don't know Jesus personally, all you need to do is come to him and ask for forgiveness and that burden will be lifted. Jesus said this in Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did I not prophesy or in your name or in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It's important to understand salvation is not head knowledge. It's not knowing and a mental assent to what he has done for us. It is truly not what you know, but who you know that gets you into the kingdom of God. When I got saved as a teenager, I wrestled for this with this for two weeks. I heard the preacher giving the gospel message. I didn't fully understand, but I knew that what that pastor had, I wanted. I read tracts, and I learned I needed to come to him for forgiveness. I even learned the sinner's prayer, Lord, forgive me, come into my heart and make me a new person. I prayed that prayer many times during this time, every time I knew I was not saved. If you will, I wrestled with this truth up here. Then one day I was sitting in my grandmother's living room and God said to me three simple words. You need him. At that moment, I turned to Jesus and said, with all my heart, 
I need you. And I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God had saved me. Just like Jacob wrestled with God, and God touched him in the hollow of his hip, and said, let me go. And Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. I wrestled with God until God was ready to tell me what it was I truly needed. I want you to understand that this was my personal experience. Each person must experience God's saving grace individually. Each person gets saved differently. When Paul was going to Damascus, Jesus confronted him, and Paul started his journey to salvation by asking, Who are you, Lord? On the day of Pentecost, those who heard Peter's sermon were pierced to the heart and cried out, What must we do? While Peter was still preaching to Cornelius and his household, the Holy Spirit fell on them and they were saved. The verse up there, Acts 16.31. Paul and Silas gave this as an answer to the Philippian jailer who said, what must I do to be saved? Getting saved means this, having a personal encounter with Jesus where you ask for forgiveness. Remember the Pharisee and the tax collector? Jesus said, the, the tax collector beat his breast and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that man walked away forgiven. It's important that we all examine our hearts and make sure of our relationship with Jesus. Hebrews 3.13 says, But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today. This is our responsibility here. Remind and encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We are responsible for our brother. Yes, I am my brother's keeper. And we are responsible to remind each other that we need to remain faithful. It's not a harsh thing. It's an encouragement first by example and second by prayer and third sometimes by talking to a person. Sometimes just coming along beside and offering help. The preacher follows this verse with a second warning. Almost a full repetition of what he said. That we don't follow the example of those who followed the ten spies. He wanted us to get this message 
so much that he said it twice. The preacher felt this issue was really important. And I would be doing you a disservice to not remind you that we must follow Christ's example of faithfulness. And we must encourage each other to do the same. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your example and what you have done for us, Lord. There is no way that we can repay you for what you have provided for us in your salvation. We pray that you'll help us to remember to walk faithfully before you. We pray that you'll help us to encourage each other in a way that leads us all to draw closer to you and to walk in the love and grace that you want us to walk in. In Jesus' name, amen.